Section 52 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Homicide, Part 29, The Brantley-Eskridge Romance, Part 5. Mrs. Brantley soon afterwards was brought before a magistrate's court on preliminary trial. She waived examination and consented to give bail for her appearance at the next term of the Circuit Court of Noxabee County in the sum of $7,500. The court, without solicitation from the defendant, fixed her bail at $1,000. After furnishing the required bail, Mrs. Brantley went to Chattanooga and visited other places, returning to Macon and to the house of Deputy Sheriff Reed during setting of the circuit court at the spring term of 1871. While at the house of Mr. Reed, she wrote a very lengthy letter to Eskridge, who was then in jail in Macon. Concerning this letter, there are interesting particulars in the testimony of Mrs. Reed. That lady said, Mrs. Brantley was brought to our house in the month of December, 1870. She boarded with us a prisoner until her bond was made. I had frequent conversations with her during her stay, which was about three or four weeks. She frequently referred to Eskridge and spoke of him as a good and kind man. She expressed great sympathy and sorrow for him and said that she could not believe he was the man who had killed her husband. She sent a newspaper by her brother, whom she called Bud, and told him to take it to him. She called no name. Her brother refused and said, Oh no, sis, I don't want to. She then entreated him and said, Oh, take it, do. He is so lonesome and wants something to read. Bud put the paper in his pocket and went away. I saw a lady called Mrs. Eskridge while she was in Macon. She had a child with her named Morton. Mrs. Brantley was at my house at that time, and Eskridge was then in jail. The day before she left my house, she wrote a lengthy letter, was writing almost all day and nearly all night, and she was crying nearly all the time she was writing. In the afternoon of that day, she asked me to walk out with her, and I did so. While walking, we passed by the jail, and she asked me to point out the room which he occupied in the jail and which window he could look out of. Soon after our return, she recommenced her writing and took her writing materials out on the porch. She continued crying and told me she was writing to a cousin of hers who had not heard of her trouble. She wrote until dark. After supper, a neighbor came in and in the course of conversation, he spoke of a man by the name of Moore, who had been arrested and put in jail here. Mrs. Brantley joined in the conversation and seemed to be much interested. 
She inquired how it happened that Moore was so easily caught and was told that he was detected by a peculiar watch key and chain that he wore. She continued her writing in my room until after midnight, having inquired first if it would disturb us, stating that she had a great deal of writing to do. She left my house the next morning, saying she was going to Chattanooga. Before leaving, she came into my room and laid the letter which she had written on the mantel and asked me to deliver it to Mr. Reed, my husband, with the request that he would hand it to Colonel Dismux, her attorney. I took the letter from the mantel. It was unsealed and addressed upon the outside to Colonel E. Dismux. I opened and read it all. I am acquainted with the handwriting of Mrs. Brantley. It was her handwriting. I copied the letter and copied it carefully, word for word and letter for letter. Where a word was erased in the letter, I erased it in the copy I made, and it was, in all respects, a perfect copy. When I had copied it, I gave the letter to Mr. Reed. The copy which I made is now on file in the office of the clerk of the Circuit Court of Noxabee County. The letter to which the foregoing testimony alludes was enclosed in a sheet of paper upon which were written the following words. Colonel Dismux, will you be so kind as to hand this letter to and oblige yours truly, M.S. The whole manuscript was placed in a large envelope addressed to Colonel E. Dismux and was delivered to him upon his calling and inquiring of Mr. Reed for it, saying that he received a telegram from Mrs. Brantley, requesting him to call for it. The full text of the letter is as follows. My own precious one, we did not come this morning as we expected. We were left. Oh, my darling. Oh, how painful. How cruel and agonizing it is to my poor, sad heart. To be so, I can almost hear you speak, but dare not go to you. Bud, footnote, Bud is the pet name of Mrs. Brantley's brother. Wants to see you, but I think it best he should not. He is perfectly willing for me to do everything in the world for you and will assist in getting money for you. I am going to raise money for you, my own darling one, if I have to sell my land. You shall be released, cost what it may. I cannot live, my sweet one, if you have to suffer in this way, for you are suffering, surely. But is willing for us, just as soon as we can raise the money, to go far away to some new state. And now, my precious one, Promise me that when you are free, you will not stop until you are far, far away from this country. Do not, for God's sake, and your own loving D's. Footnote. D is Mrs. Brantley's signature, as used in her recent correspondence with Eskridge. Sake, try to see me. It will not do for us to see each other in this country for you will be hunted down, and of course I will be wretched, for they will think that you will be somewhere near me. Oh, my heart's idol, 
Is it not better for you not to see me for years? But it will not be that long. Oh, sweet one, I know you were crazy to see me, and it will almost kill you to have to live without seeing me. But it must not be. Promise, swear to me that you will not, that you will go far, far away from me. You know, my own darling, that I will join you as soon as it is prudent and safe for me to do so. I swear, so help me God, I will not rest one moment until I get my business in a condition so that I can meet you. You are my life, my all on earth. I love you, my own sweet one, more than life. I live for you, and I would die for you. Bless your precious soul. My darling, it would be a pleasure to die, if necessary, for one so sweet, so noble, so faithful and good as your own precious loved self is. Oh, my darling, what is life to me without you? Nothing but a lonely, wretched, and miserable existence. You almost fill my every thought, every desire, and there will not, cannot be any peace for my weary, anxious soul until you are free and I am with you. My dearest one, you must go far away into some new state and firmly bear our separation like a true man, with patience and cheerfulness, until I can join you. For I swear to you, my own loved one, that my soul, heart, and mind shall know no fear nor rest until I join you and that I am coming to my own darling the moment I get the money. For we must have money. We cannot live without it. And I am going to have it at any sacrifice. I will sell the last thing I have on earth to raise it. I am fearful I will have to sue for my insurance policies before I can get that money. But is willing for us to leave this country. Indeed, he is very anxious to have us do so. He expresses a great deal of sympathy for you, my own sweet boy. We can find places where we can live unknown and in safety. The only trouble will be in your getting away. When you first leave here, my darling, you must be so cautious and prudent in traveling. I would not go where there are telegraphs. You will have to disguise yourself completely. Have nothing about you that could be recognized not even your name. Oh, my precious one, I am so fearful that if you do get out, you will not be prudent or cautious enough. If you stay here and stand a trial, I am so fearful that they will do the worst they can against you. Oh, my precious one, will you promise your devoted Dee that you will trust to her undying love, her true sincerity and everlasting faithfulness, and devotedness to you, that you will not give yourself any uneasiness about her, but rest assured that she loves you with a deathless love which the whole world cannot change, and that your deeds, every thought and hope is of you, and that she will employ every moment and bend every energy for you. Precious darling one, believe me, so help me God. Your D will join you even though you are in Europe or any other part of the world. Yes, my sweet, worshipped boy, 
I am coming to you, or will die in the attempt. O sweet one, will you take the advice of her whose very being and existence is centered in you? Sweetest, dearest, best of God's creation. Yes, darling, I am proud of your love, and thank God in the fullness of my heart for blessing me with such pure and faithful love as yours. You alone, darling one, can make me happy, and I will die a thousand deaths before I will give you up. Yes, I first will sacrifice every earthly joy and pleasure, indeed all that is near and dear to me. My darling, I will remain in Chattanooga until I hear from you. You must destroy every letter I write you, for it would ruin us forever if they should be found. When you read my letters, do not let anyone see you. Oh, how my heart longs to be pressed to your faithful breast once more. It is cruel, almost wretchedly painful, to have to wait for that sweet, blessed hour when we will meet to part no more on earth. My darling, let us pray to God to reunite us and for a Christian resignation to suffer patiently our separation until we can join each other in safety. God is merciful and good, and he will not deprive us of the greatest consolation we have on earth, although the dark clouds of hopeless despair hang threateningly over our gloomy pathway, and the sunshine of hope seems forever fled. In his own good time, he will bless us with peace and happiness. Many have suffered the same bitter trials and sorrows, such as we now endure, yet in the end have come out triumphant. So let us, my own darling, strengthen our hearts with new hopes, energies, and fortitude to bear all and prepare ourselves with renewed vigor to conquer or die, to overcome all obstacles which would keep our hearts apart. Oh, my own sweet boy, if I could only feel that you will cast off all unhappy feelings, and cheer up and endure your troubles like a brave and true man, I would be so much happier. So do be cheerful, my darling, and determined to be free. I almost die with all sorts of fears and misgivings concerning you. Will you do as I beg and entreat of you? And, oh, believe and trust in your own devoted deeds, faithfulness, and undying love for her own worshipped and idolized boy. There goes your dinner. Footnote. Eskridge's meals were sent to him from the house wherein Mrs. Brantley was writing. Oh, my darling, it recalls happy scenes of days gone when we used to have our meals brought to us. It is almost more than my sad, aching heart can stand. And to think, darling, that the one I so intensely, so fondly, so madly love should be so cruelly and awfully treated. I would to God I had the power. Then my darling should be free should not remain one moment more in that old, hateful place. Oh, God, have mercy, and deliver my precious one from his enemies, and restore him, most gracious God, to her who will never, never know peace, nor happiness, nor rest until he is free. Precious, I have wept thousands of bitter tears over this letter. I write a while and cry a while. 
My darling, I am truly glad and delighted that M, footnote, M, Eskridge's wife, is to remain with you. It is just what she ought to do. It will be so consoling and cheering to you in your loneliness to have her who loves you and is so near to you, to your heart. Oh, my precious one, I sometimes feel that I am doing wrong in loving you when your sweet and lovely wife, who should occupy your whole heart, I am sometimes fearful that God will not bless our love. Oh, if you could only forget me and bestow all your heart's best and warmest affections upon her who, before God, is fully entitled to them. I sometimes think that it would be better for all if I were to go into a nunnery, and there is but one thing that keeps me from it, and that is my promise to you. My darling, try and keep M with you all the time, for it will be a great consolation to me to know that you have a loved one with you. Oh, would there was more for me. Yet all can see you but poor me. It is too bad, too cruel. Precious, I have heard so many lies since I returned to this place that it makes me hate and despise mankind. How can men tell such base, malicious lies? I do believe the old devil has been turned loose and has possession of most men. How I long to leave this country and go to some far distant one where I will never hear of any person whom I ever knew. My darling, I am heartsick this evening. Your dear looks ten times older than when you saw her last. Grief and sorrow are leaving deep and lasting traces upon her brow and heart. Yes, all within is dark and lonely, desolate and wretched. Oh, what is life to me now? I would pray for death, darling, if it were not for you. I must live to save you, to help you to be free once more. I must live. I must suffer all, bear all, for your sweet sake. I will never give up the ship, but will struggle on with undying faith, hope, and energy until she is brought safely into port. Oh, my darling, you cannot feel more miserable than I, for although my poor feeble body is not imprisoned, yet my heart, soul, and thoughts are, for they are with you day and night, and your sufferings, griefs, and sorrows are all, all mine. Believe me, dearest, my spirit watches over you day and night. I am with you, always with you. Oh, darling, pray with your own dee, that our Almighty Father to sustain you in your undertakings and to restore you soon to the loving arms that are tremblingly awaiting to forever clasp around you. My darling, I could never pray with any faith or power before. My every breath is a prayer for my absent darling boy. Just as soon as I return to Chattanooga, I will send you my picture, which I will have taken but you must be so careful with it. Keep it close to that heart, whereon I so often have lain my weary head. My darling, it seems impossible for me to stop writing to you. I will send you some papers for you to read in your lonely hours. Oh, how can I say farewell? How can I part with you? 
How can I leave my sweet one? I have almost cried my eyes out. Indeed, they are so weak from crying, I am uneasy about them. Write to your own D. Five o'clock. My loved one, since I returned this evening from a walk in which I had to pass the dark and gloomy walls wherein the idol of my heart is confined, I feel that death would be to me a blessing. O merciful God, to think the idol of my soul should be cruelly and wrongfully shut up in that gloomy. Oh, it will kill me. The very thought is maddening. I must leave this place, or I certainly will go mad. Yes, mad, if I remain a week longer. It is more than my poor grief-stricken heart can bear. I am weeping the most painful, the most bitter tears I ever shed in my life. Now, while I am writing, did you ever see your D as she passed by? Oh, I can never tell you the agony I felt. I have had sorrow, but never in all my life have I suffered such painful, excruciating grief as I now am suffering for you. My darling, all say to me that I am free from all my troubles, that I should be very happy. Dearest one, they know not what they say. They know not the utter desolation and wretchedness, the imperishable grief that fills my soul. They know not that all my earthly happiness, nay, my very life and existence, are confined in that gloomy prison. I cannot live if you are not released. I shall go crazy or will die. I truly believe I have been almost insane all day. Oh, my darling, why did you not write your D one sweet line today to cheer and console her poor heart? I know you have with you those who love you fondly, and I will not be selfish. God bless dear little Morton. Footnote. Morton is Eskridge's little son. How truly I love him, for he is my darling's child, and his children are dearer to me than all others. How much I would love to have him with me. And darling, as long as I have a cent, I will share it freely with your loved ones, for they are mine also. It would kill me to learn that they ever suffered while I have a cent left. Precious, I am going to try to sell my land so that we will have money enough to buy us all a home in some distant new state. Should you get out, let me beg of you to wear nothing whatever that you have worn before, not even your sleeve buttons. Do not have any baggage that you have with you now, for if you do, you will be described, and it may be the means of your recapture, as were the things of more. He was discovered by a key upon his watch chain. See what little things will do. Oh, how can I stop writing? For it is my only pleasure and comfort. When you write me, direct your letters like the others, except do not put on them strictly private, as it may cause suspicion. Try and disguise the backing of your letters, as they may have found out your handwriting in the office here. Give all your letters to Dismuks to put in the office. My loved one, write to your D soon. God bless you and our dear loved ones. Ever yours until death, 
D. It is now a well-known fact that at the date of these occurrences, the prison discipline in some of the southern states was of an exceedingly loose and uncertain character. The officers of justice were those least competent to serve as such, and in some instances, even the bench was in the custody of persons without honesty or reputation. It is not to be wondered at, then, that this beautiful woman, who was so madly in earnest, should have found an official ear willing to listen to her entreaties. Little surprise was manifested when the fact was made public that the cell of Eskridge was mysteriously vacant, that the prisoner had gone. No one knew whither. The extent of Mrs. Brantley's complicity with the murder was not then known, nor was it generally credited, and those who did suspect such a thing possible were willing to excuse or justify it. Not only was Mrs. Brantley the charming woman we have described, but her husband was known in the locality as a miserable vagabond and a fugitive from justice. It was no wonder that she could not mourn a loss, which was merely nominal, not real. The criminal proceedings against her were quietly abandoned, and she then only needed to return to Selma for the furtherance of her plans and to notify the insurance companies of her claims against them. This she did through her counselor, General Morgan. Without delay, legal steps were taken by her attorney for the recovery of the sum insured, which action resulted in the disclosure of the plot, culminating in the tragic manner we have related. So overwhelming was the evidence produced by the Travelers Insurance Company in defending the suit. The plaintiff saw that her cause was not only hopelessly lost, but that her liberty, and perhaps her life, was endangered. A discontinuance of the suit stopped the introduction of further evidence, and the plaintiff disappeared from public gaze. For a long time, her whereabouts was a profound mystery, known only to her legal advisers, if at all times it was known even to them. The developments resulting from the insurance suit occasioned further steps to be taken for the recapture of Eskridge, and finally he was discovered and arrested in Texas, whence he was brought back to Mississippi, where he was tried for the murder of Brantley, and upon being found guilty was sentenced to be executed. That the extreme penalty of the law would have been carried into effect, there is no reasonable doubt. But during the governor's temporary absence from the state, a pardon was obtained from the Negro lieutenant governor. It is generally believed that a bribe of $500 was the price paid for Eskridge's pardon. We have no positive evidence that such or any sum was paid. Our only reason for discrediting such a rumor is that so large a sum as $500 was regarded necessary to purchase a pardon from the official who granted it. End of section 52